This chapter begins the third major section of the book of Romans. If we don't count the introduction, which was the first 17 verses, from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, we were discussing condemnation. This was the bad news, remember? Why do we need a gospel in the first place? And the answer is that the wrath of God is poured out against sin, and we are all sinners. Therefore, we are all under the wrath of God. But then in chapter 3, verse 21, to chapter 5, verse 21, which is the end of that chapter, we talked about justification, which is the past aspect of salvation. This is the moment where through Jesus Christ and your faith, by His grace, the Lord has saved you. He has declared you to be righteous even though you are guilty. He has chosen to treat you as if you were righteous and not to count your sin against you. And Paul spent a long time explaining that, proving it through the scriptures, using the examples of Abraham and Adam. And we've established that now, that we are saved from the wrath of God by the grace of God through faith in his son Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And now, chapters 6 through 8, which many people have called the heart of the book of Romans, we're going to talk about sanctification, which is the life that we live now. To be sanctified is to be made more and more holy, more and more set apart. So, whereas justification describes largely the past aspect of salvation, sanctification discusses the present aspect, the ongoing aspect of being made righteous. You were declared righteous, now God is going to make you actually righteous by His Holy Spirit. And so as we get into chapters 6 through 8, we're going to be talking a lot about right and wrong, and obedience, and the law, and doing the right thing, and how the Lord is transforming our lives through the Holy Spirit. And this is the part of Christianity that more people are either more repelled by or more attracted to, and that is the moral aspect of Christianity. Christianity is known as a moral religion, and I think that's a good reputation to have, isn't it? to be known for its morals. And there are many people that have tried to reduce Christianity to that, that it's just about the morals. And you don't really need all of the the cross stuff as long as you know the right and wrong. And it's good inspiration to do the right thing, but the morals are the most important thing. Thomas Jefferson very famously was like, what do we need all these miracles for? Why why don't we just kind of get all the boring, weird stuff out of the way and, and just have some life lessons to follow? There are folks that still want to do that today. They, they see culture disintegrating and they say, we got to get Christianity back. They don't want the gospel back. They just know that we need some rules or people are going to go crazy. And there are some people that react negatively to that. And they see things like Christianity is just about telling people what to do and putting your finger in their face and telling them what's right and what's wrong and, and condemning people. It's, it is unfortunate when the faith gets reduced to that. But unfortunately, we in the church can do this too. And we can gain a reputation for judgmentalism where we're not talking in terms of grace and faith and sanctification. We're talking in terms of preference, terms of tradition, like the Pharisees did. And doing the right thing is the most important thing. And we become more and more micromanaging in our morality as Christians, where it's not just about doing the the things that are not sinful. Now it's you've got to do all this extra stuff too. So how do we avoid all of that? How do we avoid all of those excesses that I just described? Well, the way that Paul opens up this section, which is largely about righteous living, is by deeply rooting it in the doctrine that has gone before. 
This is why doctrine matters. This is why sometimes if it feels like we're hammering some of the same things over and over again, you have to get this. Trying to separate the cross and justification and grace from doing the right thing is, is always going to have disastrous results because you've completely unmoored the ship from its anchor and it provides a more solid foundation. So in the coming weeks, and I think maybe especially next week, we're going to be laying out a high standard of behavior for Christians. And there should be a high standard of righteousness. But if we don't first know why, we're either going to be cowed and afraid or we're going to get angry and we're going to walk the other way. And neither of those things are good. So let's look at these verses together. We'll start with verses 1 and 2 and we'll walk our way through this passage. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Now he says, what shall we say then? This is very often a way of Paul's transitioning from one thought to another. So it's good to look back when we see words like then and therefore. And in verse 20, this is what he's responding to. He had given this great statement where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As sin goes up, grace goes up. The more sin there is, the more grace there is. And that's a wonderful statement, and it sounds really poetic and punchy, and, and we kind of like phrases like that as Christians. But Paul is aware of how phrases like that can be misused. So in verse 1, he's going to answer the obvious question. If we're saved by grace through faith, if we've already been declared righteous so that we're no longer having to measure up to be saved... And if our sin only results in more grace being poured out, does that not then imply that you should sin as much as you can? If more grace is a good thing and more sin equals more grace, therefore more sin is a good thing. Now we all are a little horrified by that, but he knows to respond to it. There's a little mini lesson for you. The Bible very much knows the proper way that it is to be interpreted. Paul's going to say, now I know what you're thinking, and if you're thinking that, you're wrong. So it's not just a matter of how does it feel to you or what does it mean to you. We've got to know what it, what it says. Is sin a positive good? Well, he responds very emphatically in verse 2, by no means. The older translations had God forbid here. We've already seen this phrase a couple times. This is the Greek megenoita which means may it never be. We, we, we put this in our own vernacular as, what are you, nuts? So you're saying I, I should keep sinning as much as possible so that there's lots of grace and glory to God. Are you, what? No, of course not. This is good to see because it, it is immediately blocking off one avenue of interpretation that you could get from the gospel, and it's a false one. Paul, it seems, was often accused of preaching licentiousness which comes from the word license, as in license to do whatever you want. Paul would be accused, especially by some of the Pharisees and the Jews, of teaching, well, if you're just saved by grace alone, then you can do whatever you want, and it doesn't matter. So Paul's going around teaching these people to do whatever they want, and especially as he would come and tell these Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised, you don't have to keep the law, you don't have to keep the Sabbath. It very much looked to them like Paul was peddling a, a gospel of immorality, which was simply not true. You know, very often people try to pin other folks down, and this is what you're really saying. But it's good to hear what the, what the person themselves says. 
Paul is aware of how this can be used poorly, and he heads that off with verses like this. Of course not. Megenoita, by no means. So if you're thinking that salvation gives you permission to sin, no, you're wrong. And the other apostles were aware of this too. I'm going to read a kind of a longish passage from 2 Peter here. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And we're going to see that Paul or Peter is encouraging them to live righteously. And he's actually going to bring up Paul and some of the false accusations against him. It's a fascinating little passage that Peter was aware of Paul, wrote about Paul, and that they were actually talking about each other in the, in the canon. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that would be the return of the Lord, going to heaven, things like that, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Because if you know that the bridegroom is returning for the bride, you want to be a pure, spotless bride without any sin. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's saying, yeah, we want God to come back right away, but as he delays, it gives us a chance to, to get it more right and get our lives more together and more people to be saved. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans? That you should count the kindness of God as leading to salvation and that you shouldn't presume on his grace? He says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Of these matters, in all his letters, what does he mean? Peter is saying, Paul also teaches that, yes, God has given you grace and patience and room, but you need to use that as an opportunity to live righteously. There are some things in his letters, Peter writes, that are hard to understand. Peter said that about Paul's letters. So if you ever feel bad reading Paul's letters, know that Simon Peter is like, ah, that's kind of hard to understand, Paul. Which, he says, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Ignorant, unstable people twist the gospel to their own destruction. Ignorant people. Folks that don't know what they're talking about, but they're more than willing to stand up and preach about doctrinal matters. Unstable people. People that don't have a good handle on their lives, but they seem to know for sure they can do whatever they want with God's word. As they do the other scriptures. Peter just referred to Paul's writings as scripture. That's significant, by the way. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And that's something for our time that we need to hear, isn't it? Do not get carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Don't chase trends, Christians. You just stay stable on the foundation that God has given to you. But the whole point of reading that passage at length is that Peter is encouraging the people to, yeah, we're waiting for the return of the Lord, but try as hard as you can. Make every effort in the Spirit to be without spot and without blemish. That's what Paul teaches in his letters. Everybody always says that you, Paul teaches you can do whatever you want, but those are ignorant, unstable people. So this is good. The other apostles were aware of the temptation to make grace an excuse for sin. And all of them wholeheartedly rejected that. Paul didn't teach that. Peter didn't teach that. And he even defended Paul against those that accused him. Jude didn't teach that, certainly. Read Jude. It's an intense little letter. John didn't teach that. He says, if you are abiding in Christ, you're going to keep his commandments. James didn't teach that. James said, faith without works is dead. And we, these guys were all on the same team teaching the same thing. You are not saved by your works, but that does not nullify your moral responsibility as a Christian. 
That's the whole point of these first two verses. He's just saying, absolutely not, we're not having that discussion. It is very sad that sins of many kinds are so widely accepted in the church by seemingly spiritual people. Let me just give you one example that I found. This might seem like an odd stat to find, but when I heard it, it, it caught my attention, so I'll share it with you. There is a Christian dating site called ChristianMingle.com. Maybe you've heard of it before. So these are people that are looking to you know, find someone to love by identifying themselves as Christians and being around other Christian people. They did a poll, an anonymous poll of that website and the users of it. 87% of the people on that website said they did not believe that premarital sex was a sin and that they would engage in it themselves. Now that's, that's a dating site, right? There can be a ton of people that are saying, I'll just try them all. I'll try the Christian one too, you know, and and see what else. But that means that nine out of every 10 people on a Christian site looking for a Christian spouse say, we are willing to commit fornication together. We don't think that it's wrong. 36% of evangelical Christians, so not, you know, not people that say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I also worship Buddha, like evangelical Christians. 36%, according to a Pew Research poll, said that casual sex before you're married, casual, somebody you're not in a committed relationship with, is sometimes or always acceptable. Uh, that's opposed to 57% of all kinds of Christians who would range from very liberal to very orthodox. But I, this is just one example that I, I keep running into that it, it seems like we're buying into what the culture believes that you can have sex with whoever you want and it really doesn't matter. And maybe you should try a few people out before you get married and it doesn't really matter because what's marriage anyway? It's just a piece of paper completely losing what the Bible has taught for thousands of years. And it's not like we're coming to some new interpretation, by the way. It's not like I've been carefully studying the Bible and I, I think that we were wrong on this one. No, it's as the world has gone that way, we're going right along with them and we're calling it righteous. And there are folks that they'll stand up in church, they'll stand on the stage and sing and close their eyes and weep and read their Bible and post things on Instagram and then they'll live with their boyfriend or their girlfriend and they don't see anything wrong with it. And they'll get mad at you for even suggesting that it might be wrong. But Paul uses this example here that if you think that because you're saved, you're given a pass on that, you're wrong. He uses the example of death here. If you're dead to sin in Christ Jesus, you will not have a settled attitude of willful sin. Otherwise, how can you claim to be alive if you're still walking around dead? This is important to know. And I'm only going to use that one example of, of just how this can creep into the church. Oh, it's not such a big deal. Yeah, it is. Sin is cancer. Sin is death. And we've died to those things. We're supposed to be raised to walk in newness of life. And if it makes you feel weird or out of place, well, good, because you're a living person among dead people. You're the only one that can see in a room of blind people. You're the only one that is awake to the things of the Spirit. It's important to make this point before we move on to what's going to be a long discussion of sanctification, that being a Christian does not give you permission to go and sin. He, he gives meganoita at the very beginning of that. If you think that you're going to increase grace and increase your testimony by all the sins you commit, Paul says that's evidence that you're actually still dead in your sins. Now let's read verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's one of my favorite verses in the entire scripture. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's an exciting little section of scripture, I think. He says, says, sin is not permissible for Christians. You've died with Christ. And we go, wait a minute. When did I die with Christ? I'm still alive. When did I die? I'm not dead. Jesus died. We celebrate it every Easter. But when did I die to sin? And Paul is going to begin to explain this, this doctrine here. That is one of my favorites. The answer is that you died with Christ, he says, at your baptism. Baptism is what? The initiatory rite of Christianity. This is, the, this is the, the initiation. Lots of other groups will have different things they do. You join a fraternity. They got all kinds of weird things that you've got to do. You know, if you're going to be part of some other group, you know, they're going to go through ceremonies. Baptism is that for the church. It's a symbol. It's not magic, right? It's not like, oh, man, he was on his way to his baptism and he got hit by a truck. Too, too bad. He, he missed his chance. It's not magic, but it's a symbol of what's gone on in your soul change. It's a picture. It's a living outward sign and symbol of dying with Christ by going into the water and rising again with Christ by coming out of the water. That's the symbol of baptism. And I very strongly emphasize, this is not teaching baptismal regeneration, that you have to be baptized to be saved, but I will say you need to be baptized. (laughs) The, The Bible has no conception of a Christian who has not been baptized, which is why they can talk about the ceremony as a stand in for the, the process of salvation itself. So if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. But we'll move on from that. He's using it here as a picture, as an illustration. And as an illustration of a doctrine called solidarity with Christ. Which means that your life as a Christian is to be a mirror of Christ's life. That all the things that Jesus did and went through are to be relived in you. That you are an imitator of Christ. He uses that phrase that we were baptized into Christ. That that phrase, in Christ, into Christ, is used throughout the New Testament. It's a very important phrase for us to have. Paul illustrates this in Galatians 2.20 by saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. I said, wait a minute, Paul, you're still alive. Yeah, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Into Christ, solidarity with Christ, dying with him, being crucified with him. This is the explanation Paul gives of why Christians cannot continue in persistent willful sin. Because we are to live a life that is parallel to that of Jesus. So I'm going to give you five steps of of how the Bible explains the the steps of Christ's life are to be the ones that you go through too. And the first one is, is the obvious one, which is the incarnation. And this was the first step taken by Jesus himself. He became a man. The word became flesh to share in our life, to share in our experience on the earth. The Bible says he was tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. To fully gain the human experience, the hypostatic union between God and man in Christ. So the fact that Jesus became a man initiated that process, that you are to be parallel with him. And that he took on the likeness of sinful flesh, even though he himself was without sin, we also get to see in Jesus what is possible through grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The next big step, as Paul said here, is the crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross. His death is to be a mirror of your death, not at the end of your life, but when you become a believer, when you are saved. You share in the death on the cross when you die to the old life. You die to, it says, your old self in this translation. The old man is what it literally has there. That we die to the old life. That just as Jesus' life ended on the cross, your old life in sin, your old life apart from God, your old life of rebellion and tragedy is over. We're not doing that anymore. I'm not the same person that I used to be. It is the dead in Christ who will be saved. And this is not just a parallel, but when you come to the end of your life, as you die, you better be hoping that you are dying in Christ. And that this life, which is the culmination of a life of obedience to God, is a parallel to Jesus, whose life also ended with obedience to God. That's what baptism represents, death to the old man. Number three, resurrection. We Share in the resurrection. He says it right here, by walking in newness of life. This is good because we can immediately jump to the resurrection at the end of time. And that's important. We're going to get to that. But it's also talking about resurrection right now. The old life is gone, but I'm still alive, right? I've been crucified with Christ, yet now I live. Okay, I'm still alive. I'm living a new life in Christ. Everything's changed. It's all different now as I live in Christ. And of course, it also means that on the final day, you will be raised bodily like Christ was raised bodily. The fourth is the ascension. What does the Bible say? To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. That when we die, we're no longer sent to the the grave. Sheol is the Old Testament word for that. But that we are taken to the presence of God and comforted, the Bible says. And we're still waiting for the end of the story, but we're comforted in heaven, which is why if you die in Christ, we we speak of, you know, she went to heaven, he went to heaven. Because Jesus has led captivity captive, the word says. He's, He's gone up into heaven, and if he has been able to return, he can bring us with him. We're co-heirs with Christ, we're going to read in later chapters, that we rule and reign with him, that we will be glorified as he was glorified. And there's passages in scripture that says, we're not even quite sure what that means, but it's going to be pretty great to be glorified with Jesus. And number five, his return, the coming return of Jesus. The Bible says that when he appears, that we will appear with him, that Christ's return will be our return. That we will come with them. That that there will be a day when we come back as he establishes his kingdom. And on that day, all the symbols will have been done away with. And it will be pure reality for the rest of time. We're going to return with him. This to me is, is one of the most profound lessons of the New Testament. That we are in Christ spiritually. And you, in a sense, are living his life after him. That... Yes, you you have been born just as he was born. So now you are on the same plane that you can access that. If you are a believer in Christ, if you've been justified, you've died to your old life. And you're now raised to walk in newness of life. And one day you're going to ascend to be with the Father and you're going to return with him on that final day. The martyrs of the faith in the early days of the church clung to this very closely. You read especially the letters of Ignatius, who was who wrote seven letters on his way to Rome where he was going to be and was eventually killed. He was, he was torn apart by wild beasts in the arena, in the Colosseum in Rome. And he was writing these letters and he keeps on talking about it like, 
I'm finally coming to the point. I'm finally reaching my salvation. And that's not to say I'm not saved until I, I die a martyr's death. He's saying, I, I'm coming to the point where I'm going to have the opportunity to die as Christ did. And I just hope that God gives me the grace to be up to that challenge. And they, 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 at that time, if you're a Christian, you were going to be killed for your faith. And so they would have to stand up and be constantly reminding the people, when that moment comes, you've got to step up as Jesus stepped up and die with him as you have lived with him. So we've got to keep that in mind too, in our everyday life, not just at some big moment like martyrdom, but, you know, saying no to temptation every single day, getting up and making something of your life instead of allowing it to ossify around you. And that is Paul's main emphasis in Romans chapter six here. He's talking about the right now reality of living a new life in Christ. All life's done. It's over. You've died to those things, which is why you can't say, well, why don't I just keep doing those things? He's like, because you died. That part of you is dead. The, the sinful part is gone. It's, it's been killed. So if you're going to walk around saying, oh, I'm just going to do this even more, he's like, I don't, I don't think you've been saved. I don't think you fully grasp what has happened to you. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That, that's, that's the Christian life, isn't it? Walking as he walked. And lots of folks want to make fun of what would Jesus do, right? And that, yeah, it can get a little silly, all right? But that is a good question, isn't it? What would Jesus do? That's what we're supposed to do, is to be imitators of Christ Jesus. Paul would even say, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. If it's hard for you to wrap your brain around living Christ's life after him, then just watch me and do that, because that's what I'm doing. That's what, if you are mature in Christ, it's what you should be able to say. Is that you follow me for now, but you really ought to learn to follow Christ and not just me. That's the Christian life. So the idea that we can live however we like is ridiculous. For we are imitators of Jesus Christ. What, what kind of disciples of the man who is without sin would we be if we say, well, we sin as much as we can so that there's lots of grace? It's foolishness, isn't it? And people, you know, we, I don't want to go off on this, but, you know, one of the other things you'll hear is, well, I'm, I'm just struggling with some things. I'm working through some things. Look, are there struggles and things that we work through? Yeah. But there are certain things that you ain't struggling. You're using the term struggle because you know that it's wrong, but you're not doing anything about it. Oh, I'm just struggling with temptation. It's like, okay, well, move out of his house. Well, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing. No, it's not. You're in sin. Stop sinning. <laughs> oh, it's just a struggle. No, th there's no struggle here. It's a commandment. Well, I just, I can't do it. I don't know if I can. All right, well, you're having tr trouble obeying. It's not a, a struggle of, I've been trying and I can't stop. It's like, yeah, I, I don't, sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's just an excuse. We're disciples of the man who is without sin, so we don't, we don't sin. We've been dead with him and we're living his life after him. Verses six and seven. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So Paul just explained, he begins with this profound big statement. We do not continue in sin as Christians because we've died to that. What do I mean by died by that? Well, he explains the doctrine of solidarity with Christ. You're living his life after him. And you might ask the question, what is the purpose of that? Why did God do it that way? Why do we embrace death? Isn't that the first thing that Christians do? We accept death. 
that we may find new life. But why is that? Why do we need our old self to be crucified? That's probably a, it's not a literal translation, but, you know, we use old man to refer to our dad. So, you know, our old man was crucified with him, but it does literally mean man, right? Our old self, the old anthropos, the old you has died. Why? He tells us why. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's a fascinating thing. Verse 7, the one who has died has been set free. The word set free is the word justify that we've seen over and over again in this book. Has been justified from sin. And they translate it set free, just about all the translations do, because they don't want to cause confusion. It's not as though, well, once you die, it's been paid for and everything is good. No, the point he's saying is, you're all settled up. (laughs) Because death is the penalty. So you die and, yeah, you're all set. But death and hell is the thing we're trying to avoid, remember. So what the Lord says is, you may die with me spiritually, and I'll count that because of what Christ has done. You can die spiritually and yet live in your body with a new heart and a new spirit. What does that mean? Brother and sister, you are free from sin right now. We're going to talk more about that next time, but you need to hear that. You're free from sin. You're not a slave of sin anymore. Because if you've died with Christ, everything that sin could get his hooks into is dead. And it's like, I'm going to hurt you. It's like, well, that part of me is dead. I I don't feel anything there anymore. This is what the Lord is trying to do. Yes, he was trying to save our souls for eternity, but he also was trying to save your life now. Sin makes everything worse. Haven't you found that to be true? Sin makes a bad situation a miserable situation. You know, we don't have any... We don't have money. We don't have food. We're cold. The heat's out. That's a miserable situation. We start sniping and griping and complaining at each other. Now it's a really miserable situation. We're often tempted, like Asaph was in Psalm 73, to think that sin is the spice of life. And if you haven't had wild years when you were young, man, did you miss out. If you, you didn't go out and party and go crazy, then, then you, you're really missing out. And if you're not cheating on your wife and getting other women, you're, you're really just, it's a boring way to live your life. And, you know, if you're not getting, you know, thousands of people to, to drool over your pictures online, you're missing out because you just got it. All you've got is the people around you. If you're not doing everything you can to get as much money as you can, how can you even say you've lived your life? That's the temptation, isn't it? Isn't that always what Satan says? That God's keeping something from you. You're in the Garden of Eden. But what if there's more to the Garden of Eden? It's a ridiculous question. It's like, what what more could I possibly need? He goes, well, what if you could be God? That's what Satan does. But he was lying, wasn't he? He was lying. He's always lying. Has your sloth and gluttony made your life better? Have you ever been so happy that you were lazy and gluttonous in your life? You ever come after like a five-year period where you weren't eating right and now you're heavier than you were and you got some health issues and you don't have any self-discipline anymore and you can barely get up in the morning and you go, that was a great decision. My life has improved. I feel so much better now that I'm sick and, and, and don't know how to take care of myself anymore. I cannot tell you how many you know, older, wiser brothers and sisters in the faith that have come up to me and said, take care of yourself. I know, you know, it's, it seems kind of silly right now, but you got to start eating right and exercising now because you don't want to be like I am now. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying that's wisdom. Sloth and gluttony doesn't make life better. It makes it worse. How about your lust? Has that made your life so much better? 
oh, just the way that I, looking at other women or other men, it just, it really helps our marriage. It strengthens our relationship, doesn't it? My inability to commit to one person because I've just got this out of control drive. And so I'm attaching myself to all these people and then breaking it off. Hasn't that been a great way to live your life? Oh, you made fun of all your buddies that were getting married when you were 28, 30 years old. But now you're like, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't such a good thing after all. Have you ever been just so grateful to God that you were petty and selfish? You know, you had a Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, you didn't feel like you were getting enough attention. So you, you twisted it and made it all about you and you caused a bunch of drama. And you ever drive home from that thinking, yeah, we ought to do this again next year. <laughs> or do you sit there kicking yourself? Why did I rise to the bait? Why did I talk that? Why didn't I just come out and say what I wanted instead of trying to go around behind the back? And what sin makes things worse. And God sees that. God sees that and goes, look what they're doing to themselves. And they can't help it. Psalm 103 says God looks at us and pities us. Like a father pities his children. They're just made of dust. Those poor little guys. What can I do for them? God saw you in your mess and said, I'm going to save their soul. I'm going to save them from hell. But I'm not just going to save them from hell at the end of time. I'm going to save them from the hell they're making for themselves now. I'm going to save them from that and give them a better life. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came so that you could get a life. He has liberated a church of people who are no longer bound by the curse of the world. We need, we need to remember this sometimes. The world is cursed. The people are spiritually cursed. And that's why everything falls apart. But God goes, how about I go and set a couple million people free from that? And then I turn them loose in their community. I turn them loose in their schools and in their workplaces and in their families. And slowly, people are going to see that that downward spiral is actually being reversed and things are getting better. And they're going to look at that and say, what's going on? That's what the Lord did. Haven't you seen that where the gospel goes? Like, yeah, people get saved. I'm not minimizing that, but things just get better. When we go to Nepal and we do ministry over there in that Hindu culture where everything is so dominated by karma and reincarnation and your next life. And they they have a belief that if you improve your life, you're not taking the full brunt of suffering you're supposed to get in this life. So you might be reborn as something worse. So you are religiously and spiritually disincentivized to make your life better, to go to the doctor, to mow your lawn to repair your your farm when the the barn blows down. But when people get saved over there, it's the craziest thing. All of a sudden, their houses get clean. They're healthier because they're taking care of themselves. They get out and they work hard. They get good jobs. And everybody either is is baffled by that or they start to resent it because they, they have something that they don't have. We liberate what Satan has stolen. That's what the gospel does those false gods that are always beating people down and the gospel comes in and, and removes those things. And the, the tragedy is that the world thinks that they can have all of that without Jesus. And every time they try to invent it for themselves, it goes terribly, terribly wrong, doesn't it? Which is why we ought to have great patience and compassion and love towards those people. Because like Jesus said on the cross, they don't know what they're doing. They know what they want, but they don't know how to get there. And it's our job to tell them. Does not the joy of that possibility eliminate the temptation to sin? Jesus said, I want you, I've saved you, and now you don't have to do any of the things that make your life worse anymore. That seems kind of restrictive. What if I want to make my life worse? I don't think sin always makes life worse. You're wrong. You're wrong. If you know that you don't have to live that way anymore, then why would you? 
If you knew that you have been given everything you need to never sin again, that's like Christmas morning. They're coming down and you're, you're, you're overjoyed at what you've got. It's really fun having Christmas with little kids because they, they can't appreciate the scale of what's in front of them. They get the one and they open it and they're just, oh, they want to go off and play with it. Like, hold on, you've got like 10 more over there. And then they're like, oh, there's more. And then like, again, they, they haven't quite learned that they're supposed to get all that stuff. And so I love seeing that. It's the same thing with us. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says to put off your old self. Sometimes you can take that old, those old grave clothes and start wearing them around for nostalgic reasons. Just put it off. That belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Doesn't that describe sin? Deceitful desires. You want something, but it's a lie. Because once you get it, you're like, why did I do that? And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self, the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Every morning you get up, you've got two suits hanging in the closet. You've got the old man and the new man. And you've got to decide to put on the old man every single day, every single hour, every single time you face temptation. It's not a burden to be saved. It is a blessed liberation. And sometimes it's tough because you, you've got you've to build some spiritual muscles that you don't have. It's sort of like, well, I, yes, I know I'm very out of shape, but every time I go to the gym, it's just miserable. It's like, because you're out of shape. And the more you go and the more you work and the harder you press and the, the faster and longer you go, you're not only going to start to get better at it, you, you might even start to enjoy it. Maybe. I've, I've heard that it can happen to people, you know. <laughs> it's the same thing spiritually. It's like, oh, I'm trying not to lie and it's so hard. It's like, well, you've never lived life without lying before. But the Lord is there to help you and teach you. And you know it's the right thing. So do it because it's the right thing. And then you will start to see the benefits. And then you'll say, I'm not just going to do it because it's right. I'm going to do it because it's better. It's better to live this way. It's Christmas morning as a Christian when you get saved. Yeah, you don't have to listen to that sin anymore. You don't have to follow that so-called addiction anymore. You don't have to deal with those demons or those vices or whatever you call them anymore. Because you've been set free in Christ Jesus. Verses 8 through 11, come to the close now. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So where have we gone so far? He began with that big statement. Don't think you can sin as much as you want because you're saved. Why is that? Because your life is to be a mirror of Christ, dying with him and raised to walk in newness of life. And then he kind of explains what that's all about. That means that your whole life is now set free from the burdens that sin placed upon you. So he starts to address this sanctifying present life. And he emphasizes that this is a total change and you've got to start to view yourself this way. He says, Christ is never going to die again. We know that, don't we? Jesus is never going to die again. It's important for us to remember that. Hebrews especially talks about how the old covenant sacrifices every day. Jesus once and for all. When we come together, we share in communion, Jesus is not dying again. We're remembering what he did when he died the first time. And now that he's risen, he says death is not his master. 
I love that. Have dominion over him is, is the word. It's a verb that comes from the word kurios, which means Lord or master. Like, death doesn't master Jesus anymore. Like, I already beat you. You've already been thoroughly destroyed. So don't think you've got any kind of, you've got no more bullets in that chamber, death. You had your shot and it didn't work. Now, if we know that all that is true, if we, well, yeah, Jesus, that's what we often say, right? Well, Jesus, yeah, he's dead to sin. But Paul goes, but you're in Christ. So you also must consider yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive anew. That word consider is logizomai. It's the same word where we talked about being counted righteous, that accounting term, that you have righteousness in your column. That's how God treats you. You yourself have to think about yourself that way. This is about self-perception, that you have to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. The only life you have left is in God for his glory in righteousness. And we have a bad habit as Christians of spending all our time at the foot of the cross and no time coming out of the empty tomb on Sunday morning. Because, you know, the most dramatic spiritual moment in your life was probably when you got saved. Probably the moment where you renounced your old life. You died to your old man and, and the Holy Spirit came and filled you up and regenerated you and it was amazing and wonderful and we're going to talk about it as we go through, especially chapter 7, but, you know, we still mess up. You're still stuck in the body and the body is still corrupt. We're waiting for the resurrection. But we've got to remember, you don't have to keep coming back and dying on the cross again. Does Jesus do that? No, he died once for all. In the same way, we can spend all our lives weeping, repenting again, reenacting the crucifixion, trying to reenact your moment of being saved. But that doesn't build faith and it's not healthy. All that teaches you is that you better not mess up and if you do, you better get back and get rededicated or you might not go to heaven. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what Paul is telling us here? Just like Jesus has to die every time somebody else sins, you yourself need to be re-saved every time you sin. No way. No way. Well, I just, I know what I'm like. I know that I'm a sinner. He says, I want you to stop thinking of yourself that way. I want you to consider yourself, reckon yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. There is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's how we're supposed to think about yourself. Not as though you're cowering and hiding from the presence of the Lord. He says with unveiled face. Moses had to cover up his face. He wasn't able to look God straight on. Paul goes, you can, because you're in Christ Jesus. Beholding glory. Your life is no longer one struggle to the next. He says, from glory to glory. One glorious moment to the next glorious moment. Like Alexander the Great, who never lost a battle. Everything was one victory after another. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm not that kind of person. Well, it's not you doing it. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the spirit of liberty within you. That God himself comes in and dwells you and begins to change you around. And so if you feel like you're at the bottom, like you're in a struggle, you're not. You just haven't come to that next step of glory yet. That's how the Lord sees it. 
and teaches you to perceive yourself. You are as dead to sin as Christ was on the cross. Did Jesus die on the cross? Yeah, he did. They pierced his side to make sure. Do you remember that? He died and he laid in the tomb for three days. That's how dead you are to sin. And you are as alive in Christ as he is risen from the dead. You are as dead to sin as Christ was on the cross, and you are as alive in Christ as he is risen from the dead. If you believe that Jesus has died and risen, you also are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. An obsession with your performance, with your works, that demonstrates a legalism that doesn't fully understand the gospel. Rules do not equal spirituality. That's good to know. Because very often, if we feel like we're not being spiritual, we'll look for something that we can measure ourselves by. And so then we can start keeping score. And if you keep score for yourself, you can, you know, score other people. And if you're scoring poorly, you can find other people that are scoring worse than you. That's legalism. That's not spirituality. I used to tell our youth leaders when I was a youth pastor, I'd say, don't make a rule if you can help it. Just trust people to do the right thing. And when we would have situations where we needed to make a few rules, right? What I would say is, let's just outline the principle and give them the opportunity to do the right thing. We would do this, for example, when we would go to the, the beach or we would go to the lake, you know, and it'd be very easy to kind of lay down the dimensions of what was appropriate swimwear and everything like that. I would just stand up and I'd say, everybody needs to dress modestly. If you can look me in the eye and say, I am dressed modestly today, then that's fine. You can come. Never had an issue, not once. Now, there can be people that are, want to take advantage of that, obviously. But that's how the Lord is with us. I'm not going to come and drop a whole big box of rules on you. I'm just going to say, walk in liberty and don't sin. That opens up a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, it does. Just you wait till we get to chapter 7. You're like, Paul, I don't know if I agree with that, but it's in the Bible. The motivation of new life in Christ by his grace is enough to transform any life. We're always looking for external motivations to do the right thing. But really what you need to do is re-understand what Christ has done. And that internal Holy Spirit motivation. You need to get in touch with the one who indwells you. That seems mystical. It is, all right? You're a Christian. You believe that you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Talk to him once in a while. Let him guide you. Let him lead you. Take time to get on your knees and seek God's help. Put the thing in his hands, you know? Why do you want to do it? You ever watch a, a, like a basketball game and it's in the last quarter and they won't put the star back in? It's like, what do we do? Get him in there. Well, I want to let everybody play. It's like, this is the NBA. We don't do that anymore. Get him in there and give him the ball, right? If the Lord's on your team, give him the ball. Let him score a thousand points. Now, over the following weeks, as we go through chapter six and into seven, there will be some strong calls to holiness coming from this pulpit. And some things that might make you feel convicted, might make you feel a little unsettled, and, and this wasn't as pleasant as the previous week was. But you've got to know that this is why. All of that is rooted in the fact that you're dead to sin, and you don't have to live that way anymore. And your sin's just going to make your life worse, so stop messing around. It begins, though, with how you consider yourself. You cannot think of yourself as free to do evil things, but nor should you be bound up in fear. You have walked out of the tomb in Christ Jesus. The cross was the, the, the beginning. The tomb is every day. The empty tomb. It seems much cleaner. You know, we talked at the beginning of how Christianity is seen by many as just a system of morals. It's cleaner just to give a bunch of rules. 
But that foundation will erode, won't it? Because a generation arises like this one that says, why should I obey your rules? What's so good about your rules? I can just make my own, can't I? Well, no, you can't do that. Well, tell me why. Well, just because you can't. We say, well, these, this generation doesn't get it. No, they, they're perceptive about a few things. That if it's not grounded in Christ Jesus and in what he, was done, what he has done, then it's all just arbitrary, isn't it? But 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're new in Christ. All the things that you, you did, all the things that you've done, those are were and was and did. It's past tense. Well, I'm always going to be. No, you won't. Oh, was Peter always the denier of Jesus? No, he was forgiven. Was Matthew all, you're once a tax collector, always a, no. He's a, he's a saved apostle in Christ Jesus. You get a new name. You get a new identity in Christ. That solidarity with Jesus, living his life after him, motivates your behavior. It doesn't frustrate it. Rules are frustrating. But walking after Christ, oh, that's, that's liberating. That's opening Christmas presents rather than a list of chores you've got to do. Now, this is not the way the world thinks about morality. The world thinks that we've got to either scientifically come to a consensus on what's right and wrong. First of all, good luck on that, pal. We'll see how that goes. But they're like, you know, well, as long as we, we know that what the symbols mean, then it's okay for us to kind of not believe them. That doesn't work, though. There are countless Christian denominations that have tried that. You don't have to believe in the resurrection as long as you know what the resurrection represents. How are those churches doing now? They're falling to pieces because people are not, they have spiritual discernment even if they don't realize it. The world is in darkness because of its sin. But once you've been set free from the penalty of sin at the cross, you are liberated from the power of sin every day in accordance with your faith. As, as much as you can believe that you are free from sin, that is how much you will be liberated actually from sin. When people came to Jesus asking for healing, he would say, according to your faith, be it unto you. Same thing for you and me. Why can't I overcome this sin? According to your faith, be it unto you. Which is why the big push for today is to reckon yourself, consider yourself, think about and perceive yourself as dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. And if you can think that way, you're never going to struggle with persistent sin.